We are going to start a series today on the book of Exodus. We finished Genesis. We're not going to go through the whole Bible, but we will uh, take Exodus and uh, follow it along. Genesis ends with a coffin in Egypt. Joseph, when he was buried, uh, commanded them to carry his bones up when they went out of Egypt hundreds of years later, uh, evidencing faith in God's covenant promise uh, that uh, they would be led up to the promised land. Genesis is certainly a foundational book in understanding the Bible, and so is Exodus. Actually, the life of Moses takes up some one-seventh of the material in Scripture, and uh, you can pick up something of the importance from that. Moses is seen traditionally as the author of Exodus, and correctly so. At the time, is around 1500 B.C. when Moses is born. Uh, archaeologists have not uh, necessarily positively identified the Pharaoh that uh, he starts off under. The circumstances, Israel was in Egypt, having come down during the famine when Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man, uh, but they began to multiply and became a threat to the Egyptians in terms of their numbers. Another Pharaoh uh, succeeded the previous one uh, who didn't really know Joseph, and Joseph passes off the scene and the Israelites began to be persecuted by the Egyptians. Finally, as they're multiplying so rapidly, the Pharaoh says that all boy babies are to be executed when they're born. Uh, Moses uh, comes along, and this is hundreds of years after uh, Israel has originally gone down into Egypt. His birth is described in chapter 2, verse 1. There went a man of the house of Levi and took to wife a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. In spite of the king's command uh, that uh, they be put to death, the parents hide their child. And Hebrews tells us, the uh, 11th chapter of Hebrews, the great chapter on faith, tells us that they did this by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid for three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Apparently, there was something maybe unusual about uh, Moses' looks. But the point comes when they can hide him no longer, and they come up with a plan they make a little uh, ark that will contain the baby and will be waterproof. They put it in the Nile River and uh, set it adrift right up above where Pharaoh's daughter and her maidens comes to bathe. In uh, chapter 2, verse 5, And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the flags, among the reeds, she sent her maid to fetch it. 
And when she had opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, who had been following along the riverbank and runs up at this point, Then said Moses' sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call thee a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for thee? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it, and the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, because I drew him out of the water. Uh, think of the providence involved, God's timing of these things. Alexander McLaurin, the Scottish uh, preacher and commentator says, All things serve his will. The current in the full river, the lie of the reeds that stop the ark, the hour of the princess's bath, the cry of the child at the right moment, all these and a hundred more are spun into the strong cable wherewith God draws slowly but surely his secret purpose into action. Well, the mother nurses Moses, his own mother, and has him for some time, and during that time she tells him of his heritage. She tells him of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She tells him of the promise that one day God will raise up a, a liberator to lead them forth from bondage and back to the promised land. Then uh, she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, who raises him from that point on. And the product, we're told in Stephen's speech in Acts 7, that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Well, the next thing that we read about Moses, he's 40 years old. And uh, he makes a tremendous choice. We have the choice given for us here in uh, Exodus 2, but it's sort of summarized in the great chapter of faith, Hebrews 11, like this. Hebrews 11:24. By faith, Moses, when he was come of years, when he was 40 years old, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Tremendous choice. Uh, the crisis, when he makes the choice, is described here in Exodus 2, verse 11. It came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way, and when he saw there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Uh, 
the convictions that led to that choice. He was convinced it was wrong for them to be treated that way. He was convinced it was wrong for him not to try to do something about it. Those were his convictions about the mistreatment, his convictions about life. We read in Hebrews 11 there. By faith, Moses, when he was come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He made a choice to give up certain things. He gave up position. He gave up power. He gave up pleasures. He gave up what 90% of the people live for. Most of the people around you live for. He gave those up. He chose voluntarily to give those things up. He chose to take up Affliction, persecution, reproach, to suffer affliction with the people of God, to publicly identify himself with them ultimately. John Brown, in his commentary on Hebrews, points out that the majority of the Israelites were not true believers. As time goes on, that becomes apparent. But all true believers in the world, virtually all, were found among this group of people. These were the descendants of Abraham, the covenant people of God. It says he chose to suffer the reproach of Christ. Why does, why is it called the reproach of Christ? Christ wasn't even born for 1400 more years. Well, it's called the reproach of Christ because this enmity between the Egyptians and the Israelites really was that old enmity that goes back to Genesis 3 when God says to the woman, that he will put enmity between her seed and the seed of the serpent. Now, the enmity between the world and the people of God. All the world is divided into two camps. Uh, remember Jesus told his disciples, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I sent unto you, the servant is not above his master. All the world divided into two camps. Spurgeon said he believed it was wise to stand on that side which was in agreement with God. Moses was 40 years old. He made that decision. It was a mature, thought-through choice. Why? It says, because he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He said, you know, I believe in the long run, I will profit more this way. There'll be reward. The other way, there'll be pleasures of sin for a season. But in the long run, it would be disastrous. This way, there'll be suffering for a season, but in the long run, I'll be rewarded. 
So many people make the opposite choice. Gordon MacDonald talks about what he calls steroidal living. People who take steroids, what happens to them? Well, they, they maybe win a gold medal. And they receive acclaim and praise. But then when they get to be in their 40s, their muscles start deteriorating and their mind begins to deteriorate. Is it worth it? Steroidal living. Most of us engage in steroidal living where we live for the moment and forget the long run. We say, well, is that a proper motive? Is it proper to uh, make a choice like that uh, so that you'll be rewarded? Uh, Isn't that sort of selfish? Didn't Jesus appeal to some motive like that? What should it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? Do you call a man selfish if he gets out of the way of a 10-ton truck? I don't. I call him intelligent. A lot of times we may have one motive when we start out, and as we go along, our motive changes. Think of the prodigal son. When he was in the far country and he was hungry and he thought, you know, in my father's house there's plenty of bread and I'm starving and I'm eating with the pigs I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say, Father, I've sinned in your sight and in heaven's sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Notice his motive. I'll at least get to eat. But after he'd gone home and his father had received him with open arms and killed a fatted calf and clad him in a robe, he'd lived at home with his father and his whole attitude toward his father changed and he'd gotten to know his father and they had a new relationship. Don't you imagine it was more just love for his father now that uh, he was motivated by? What initiate, initially motivates us to come to Christ may be one thing. What motivates us as we go along may be another thing as he works in our hearts and lives. But all along, to your dying day, it's important to keep the recompense of the reward in sight. The fact that there is a reward in the long run for those who walk with Christ, and there is doom in the long run for those who do not. That's not the mainspring of our action. The mainspring, once we've started, is love for the Lord. The love of Christ constrains us to a responding love. We love because he first loved us. But still very important to keep the reward in view. The old Puritan Thomas uh, Bolton wrote, Would we walk thankfully and cheerfully in this world, being persecuted, etc.? Be strong to do and to suffer? Would you submit to all God's disposings with you? Keep your eye on the reward. Steal a look at it from time to time. And it will oil your wheels as you go along. It's popular to ridicule a pie in the sky by and by. You believe in pie in the sky by and by? I sure do. Chocolate. Chocolate. And the best thing about it is I'm going to eat it with Jesus. Don't ever let anyone call in question the fact there is a recompense of the reward. Now, he accounted that greater riches 
than the treasures of Egypt, than anything this world could offer. How did he do that? How did he reckon it that way? By faith. He couldn't see it. But he looked for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, that Abraham had looked for before. He knew it was there because God had indicated that city that has foundations, heaven. He did it by faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Do you have faith? Do you have faith in the fact of heaven and hell and the things that God has said about these, the recompense of the reward? His convictions about the mistreatment, his convictions about life, his convictions about himself. In the seventh chapter of Acts, in Stephen's speech, Stephen says... That here's what he believed about himself. He supposed that his brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them. He knew that ancient promise that a liberator would come. And uh, he reflected on the misery of the people, their bondage, their situation, where all the boy babies are being killed. And his being spared in the unusual situation where he... A Hebrew was adopted, was in Pharaoh's house. He thought, I'm it. I'm the deliverer. His convictions about himself. And so he undertakes the task. He goes out and starts with one Egyptian who's mistreating uh, one of his brethren. And he kills him. He's confident. I can do it. Self-confidence. Self-confidence a good thing? Not really. Not, not really. The consequence of the choice that he made, the people didn't respond to him. Uh, and Pharaoh did react. And Moses had to flee for his life. Now, <clears throat> another consequence of his choice was that he saved his soul, or his soul was saved. When you make a choice like that, where you choose to give up what the world offers and to take up what Christ calls you to, well, the result is salvation. You're justified. It's possible that he was justified earlier by faith, and that this is the outworking of that as it leads to works that evidence his faith. But it's possible this is the very point. He knows earlier and he believes earlier, but now he makes the choice that true believing always involves a choice to follow God, no matter what the choice, what the cost. You remember Jesus said uh, to a crowd that was following him, if any man come after me and hate not his father and mother, sister, brother, wife, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Moses had to turn his back on his adopted mother at this point. He had to put Christ or God out front of everyone else. Jesus said, whoever doesn't forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. You have to turn your back not only on everyone, put Christ out front of everyone, but you have to put Christ out front of everything, which he did. That's the kind of choice that's involved in real salvation. If you haven't made that kind of choice, you're not saved. Well, you put Christ out front. He's your Lord. 
You're his servant. You obey him. That's the choice that's involved in being saved. He makes that kind of choice. Not that that merits our forgiveness. Christ, by his death, merited Moses' forgiveness and our forgiveness. Moses was a sinner. You and I are sinners. All men are sinners. And in the middle of history, Christ would come and die for Moses' sins, which were forgiven on credit, God knowing that one day his son was going to pay for Moses' sins. And our sins, they're already paid for by Christ 2,000 years ago when we put our trust in him and surrender our will to him. Believe he was God the Son who died for our sins. I was reading about uh, a lady by the name of Diane Williams, a fifth grade teacher. And as a hobby, she liked to skydive. And uh, she went with a group to skydive. Uh, they, four of them dove out of the plane. They were going to hold hands in a formation as they came down, but she got flipped around and her head hit the backpack of one of the other parties and knocked her out. And she starts plummeting earthward at 160 miles per hour. Well, Greg Robertson, one of the team, saw what had happened, and he made himself into a living bullet. He put his hands to his side, he crossed his ankles, and just went into what they call a, a uh, no-life dive. So that he was doing 200 miles an hour, trying to catch up with her. At 3,500 feet, 10 seconds before impact, he caught her. Pulled her ripcord, his ripcord, and they floated safely down to earth. Well, Jesus understood that we were in a no-life dive. And he dove down from heaven into this world. Only he pulled our ripcord and not his. He, it necessitated his death for us in order for God to forgive us. That's what merits our forgiveness, Christ's death. But how we appropriate that is a choice where we turn. And we don't live the way others live. We follow Christ and we trust Christ to forgive us as a gift. Well, we have the choice of Moses and you have the call of Moses. And some 40 years later, uh, this is described in chapter 3. He goes, flees to the wilderness, and uh, becomes a shepherd. Why the delay? Why so long before God delivers his people? Well, he's accomplishing some things in Moses. He's humbling Moses. He lets Moses shepherd sheep. He's been the prince. And he, Moses got married. That humbled him some more. And... Uh, so he marries Zipporah. He was accomplishing some things in the children of Israel. They were unhappy, but they weren't unhappy enough. But as their bondage gets harder, then they begin to cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And the Lord hears. And he calls Moses. The manner of that call in chapter 3, verse 1. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. The priest of Midian, he led the flock to the backside of the desert, came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb, Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And you read it carefully, you find that this is that angel who is the Lord himself. Not an angel, but 
the messenger of the Lord, who is the Lord himself. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he called to him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, he said, here am I. He said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he is afraid to look upon God. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them uh, up out of that land unto a good land, a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And uh, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. All right, Moses, you go. Notice the response of Moses, verse 11. Moses said, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? His sense of inadequacy. Contrast that with his earlier confidence, self-confidence. You know, uh, this sense of inadequacy is important. I can do nothing without God. Christ said, without me, you can do nothing. Self-distrust is good. And now he's fit for God to employ. When I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm weak, then the power of Christ can rest upon me. God reassures him in verse 12. Certainly, I will be with thee. He doesn't say, oh, Moses, you are adequate. He doesn't say that. That's right, Moses, you can't do it, but I will be with you. I am adequate. It's not a question of your adequacy. Moses uh, says, what is your name? And uh, verse 14, God said, say that I am hath sent you. I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one, the changeless one. Remember, 1,400 years later, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. May well be this is the second person of the Trinity speaking to Moses, who later became flesh. I am. Well, God calls you and me to a similar task. To go and deliver people from bondage to this world and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of this world, Satan. And we say, who are we? The reluctance of Moses in uh, verse, uh, in chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and a slow tongue. Lord, I'm, I'm not a good speaker. I, I wasn't one before you began speaking to me, and I haven't become one since you've been speaking to me. Send someone else. And notice the reasoning of God, verse 11 of chapter 4. The Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the deaf, or the dumb, or the seeing, or the blind? 
Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. What a wonderful rebuke. Moses, if I designed your mouth, can I touch your mouth with eloquence? Can I make it adequate for the task? Verse 13, Moses makes a request. He said, O my Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt send. In other words, send someone else. The reaction of God, verse 14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Before Moses was Mr. Self-Confident, Mr. Too-Quick, and he needed to learn to self to distrust himself. But he hadn't moved from self-distrust to trust in God. I can do all things through Christ. And if God calls me to a task, he will equip me for the task. It's not humility to refuse when God says, I will be with you and assigns him to go. And we too make excuses as to why we can't do what God is calling us to do. In our marriages, in our businesses, in our associations with others, in our giving, in our witnessing. Uh, we say, God, I can't do that. And God says, I will be with you. And we say, Lord, I, I'm not adequate. We need to learn to say, I can through all, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Is God calling you to something? Have you been making excuses? We don't want to undertake things in our own strength, but we don't want to shrink from anything he calls us to and undertake it in his strength. Remember that skydive. We have it pictured for us in the Lord's Supper, the result of his skydive. My body broken for you. My blood shed for you. And whatever he calls you to, feeding on him, tackle. Remembering him. Remembering what he did for us. If you're not a Christian, you have to make a choice. It's the same kind of choice Moses made. It's not an easy choice. It's a very costly choice. But if you really want to be a Christian, you have to make that kind of choice. You have to take the long-run view. You have to be willing to suffer affliction for the people of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our hearts are bound. Uh, have you ever really surrendered your will to Christ and put your trust in Him? Made that choice? If not, do that today.